Hello, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Well, that's a particularly apposite question today because we're talking about the Italian elections and Italian history more broadly. Italy's often viewed as a poster child for European dysfunction, a perennial case of political backwardness and uneven development, despite being a major industrial power in the world's ninth largest economy. Italy combines what seems to be Exotic features, at least from an Anglo-American perspective, an old culture, organized crime, endemic corruption, political dysfunction, and Catholic Baroque. But what if Italy, rather than being a country that has failed to catch up to its more austere neighbors, despite the best attempts of Eurocrats and their modernizing allies, what if it's in fact the most advanced country in Europe? What if it's the most advanced in the sense that it's been the laboratory for the future of European and global politics? What if Berlusconi, that degenerate billionaire whose multiple stints in government have defined Italian political life for the last 20 years, is not some embarrassing case of Italian backwardness, but the guy who set the model for contemporary statecraft? So joining us today to discuss bunga bunga, corruption, mafia, pineapple on pizza, and other such juicy topics is translator, editor, and historian of Italian and French communism, David Roeder. So the first 45 minutes of this is going to deal with Sunday's elections, the main players and the principal issues. The second part is a deeper dive on post-war Italian history up till this point, taking in communism and anti-communism, corruption and anti-corruption, and contemporary populism and European technocracy. There's a lot in there, but we think it's worth coming to grips with, because it may be coming to you next. Enjoy. Yeah, everything was cancelled. It's quite funny because um, the real snow was yesterday, and then today the headline La Repubblica was um, Rome, uh, the snow has melted, but the chaos remains. <laughs> Hello listeners, and welcome to uh, this week's Alpha Bunga Bunga. So we've got uh, Alex. Hello. Ben. How's it? Phil. How's it going? Me, George, and uh, most importantly, our special guest today is... Um, Shit, I shall have to start again, because David didn't ask you how you would like to be introduced. Uh, you could say I'm writing a book on the crisis of Italian democracy for Verso. I've just, so with- um, I've just handed in my... I, so I've just passed my PhD and I still have to do the corrections. So I don't have any institutional affiliation to speak congratulations. of. Congratulations. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Congratulations. congratulations. Again, indeed. Uh-huh, so, so yeah, this is, what, what better way to celebrate than to, to do a podcast? <laughs> Um, Absolutely. Okay, okay. Um, let's get started. Uh, David, can you give us a brief sketch uh, about the politician who might have just given us the modern age, Silvio Berlusconi, he of the Bunga Bunga, and how he's suddenly become a anti-populist establishment figure? Okay, um, well, obviously, uh, Silvio Berlusconi um, was something of a bogeyman of much of the uh, sort of centre and political left uh, across Europe uh, for the last two decades. Um, he uh, first sort of arrived on the on the political scene in 1994, uh, once the the other parties had collapsed at the end of the uh, at the end of the Cold War, and uh, he um, with with basically the Christian Democrats collapsing and the old Communist Party becoming a, a centre left alliance. Uh, basically, he said he thought the communists were going to win, uh, and so he came to uh, he sort of entered the electoral field with his TV channels and so on, uh, in the hope of fighting the communists, as he called them. 
also included in the group uh, communists, according to him, were the uh, the anti-corruption uh, magistrates leading a campaign against uh, embezzlement uh, that had built up in the Italian Parliament over the last well, over the last forty years, really, and uh, that was uh, sort of part of his his long-standing fight the whole time he was prime minister. Uh, it's quite common among Italians to claim that the last twenty-five years have all been the Berlusconi years, or sometimes they say Ventenia, like 20 years, like Mussolini. <laughs> uh, but he was, only actually, he was only actually in office for nine of those years. Uh, but strangely, everything the centre-left governments did when they were in power are also blamed on him. Um, while before the crisis uh, the in 2008, uh, the left basically... Uh, organized itself entirely on the basis of forming a broad popular front against Berlusconi. Uh, since then, it's been more or less uh, allied to him. In fact, for the last six years, uh, Italy has had uh, governments uniting centre-left and centre-right, uh, sometimes with Berlusconi's direct involvement uh, and sometimes outside. Uh, but basically, because this so hollowed out and destroyed the left, cutting it off from its social base as it endlessly uh, imposed uh, austerity. Uh, this has basically driven the rise of uh, new forces like the Five Star Movement and also the Lega Nord, uh, who are so strong now that the uh, only real prospect of uh, the centre-left staying in power is in a grand coalition with Berlusconi. So from the outside, it's often... Um... It's often hard to get a sense of Italian politics, partly because, um, as you've mentioned, some of the parties kind of change their labels over time. Um, there's plenty of fragmentation on the left. So could you just quickly give us maybe a thumbnail sketch of the main players and parties in the upcoming election? But yep. before before you before you do, Phil, why why is your your voice so so hoarse? I think that regular regular listeners will have will have noticed that you've got a bit of a croak there. <clears throat> it's because I've been leading. I've been leading a march in striking in defence of our pensions. Uh, university sector, the university, the national, uh, national wide, nationwide strike in defence of university pensions in the UK, which I imagine some of you have heard about. So I'm a bit hoarse from that. My apologies, apologies to my interlocutors and my my fans out there. I know who are all concerned for my health. <laughs> that sounds like a base and transparent attempt at getting some socialist cred on this podcast, Phil. Tell us the real reason why your voice is hoarse. <laughs> but but he's still podcasting. I need to build up my left wing credentials among you guys, you know. So I did it mainly to earn brownie points, to be honest. Good stuff. <laughs> so yeah, David. Sorry to uh, to interrupt there before your your answer. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I didn't do any work today either, but it was just because it was snowing too hard. <laughs> <laughs> also, you're in Italy, and you didn't need to work there. <laughs> Absolutely, I was trying to uh, sort of get into the local mentality. Um, no, so um, the question was yes. Yeah, so basically, um, in so basically, uh, the, it's right to say that the the picture of the parties is very uh, hard to follow and they change their names and indeed political positioning a lot. Uh, basically, the key dynamic is that in the run-up to the vote on Sunday, there's a coalition of the right. So it's Berlusconi's own party, Forza Italia, uh, the Lega, uh, which is a far-right party that used to be called the Lega Nord and used to want to split Italy in two, uh, but now doesn't. Uh, and then Fratelli d'Italia, 
who uh, used to be fascists and are still quite right wing. Uh, and basically that coalition together uh, around about 36, 37% on the polls. And a, there's a decent chance that they'll get an overall majority. Uh, they'd need about 40% to do so. Uh, although we don't actually know quite how much they need because the electoral system has changed because after the last election, it turned out that the electoral system used was actually in violation of the constitution, uh, which caused some problems. Um, then basically the, the next biggest block is the five star movement, uh, which is uh, a sort of very uh, heterogeneous uh, m movement against the old parties, what they call the caste, uh, which is basically the entire media, uh, banks, trade unions, uh, all the parties who are in the high 20s, but probably won't be able to get into government. Uh, then the center left block around the Democrats are at about 25%. Um, basically, the only real possibility of a majority government is if the right wing coalition win outright. Uh, but because the competition between Berlusconi's Forza Italia and the Lega is so intense, it's quite likely that they'll split apart after the election once the votes are counted anyway, and then form some sort of centrist coalition. So in, in your um, your recent J Jacobin article, you, you kind of um, explain why you have this somewhat incredible situation where the centre left seemed to be preparing to do a deal with Berlusconi. Could you explain a little bit how, how did this come about? How, how um, you know, how <coughs> awful are Italian liberals that um, this, this has been the response to Berlusconi that we see potentially occurring in, on Sunday's election? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, as I, as I said earlier, the, the basically for most of the last 20 years, the centre-left, uh, and which was mainly made up of the old Communist Party, uh, had little else uh, to talk about other than its desire to remove Berlusconi from office, uh, claiming that he was sort of a fascist and such like, uh, calling for a new National Liberation Committee, like in the resistance. Jesus uh, <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah, this sounds like uh, it's oddly like the American resistance as well. Mm. Uh, indeed. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and also it's what's also kind of strange about it is it's allied to this like kind of cultural pessimism of kind of thinking like, well, Italy is so, uh, well, you know, Italy is so fucked and all of the idiot masses are voting for this right winger. So what we need to do is become a normal country with the loving embrace of the European Union. So there were actually some calls from kind of centre-left during the 2000s for the EU to actually unseat uh, Berlusconi from office, impose sanctions and such like. Uh, which, which they uh, did eventually. Which they did, indeed they did uh, in 2011. Um, and it would be interesting to go back now and uh, tell the people celebrating that what would ultimately happen. Uh, because <laughs> there's very wide talk of a, um, a grand coalition. I mean, Renzi and Berlusconi, Renzi, the Democrat leader, and Berlusconi each kind of deny that they're going to do this, which is true in the sense that they, as individuals, wouldn't be able to take charge of the coalition, and they'll just delegate it to more minor figures within their own parties. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, the what's happened is that the, the big centrist blocks have become smaller and smaller, but since neither can ally with the five-star movement, and because each of them have a kind of mix of kind of... Uh, governmental responsibility mixed with hoping to get their own share of the pie uh, they're much more likely to go into co uh, coalition with each other 
I think as indeed they did after the last election. So, I mean, I think we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive in, in the second half of, of this podcast on, uh, on on the kind of history and the long, longer term kind of trajectories of these things. But one thing which you mentioned, I think is worth discussing a bit further now, which is the question of Europeanization. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Italy's desire to become a normal country, you know, in quotation marks. And I think over mm-hmm. the 90s and 2000s, Italy did go undergo a process of uh, of what its protagonists saw as modernization. So, yeah, I guess this was debureaucratization, uh, decentralization, and so on. Um, but the real centerpiece to that was Europeanization, right? Um, and I think probably that started in the early 90s, mid-90s, with uh, Italy's drive to make itself uh, acceptable to, to meet the Maastricht criteria for monetary union. So I think for those outside of Italy and maybe living in other European countries, maybe don't realize the extent to which Europe figures so greatly and so heavily within it, Italian public debate. So maybe you could spell out for us what Europe represents in Italian politics, because it seems a far away to your question than any other major European nation. Mm. Um, yeah, so I mean, in Italy, there's this very strange, um, quite sort of politically transversal combination of two ideas, one of which is that everything abroad works amazingly well and is a sort of impossibly high standard for Italy to live up to. um, So it's both kind of like Italy needs to become a normal country and yet also that's too high a standard so really nothing can be done and nothing will ever change and everything is explicable in terms of like weird cultural idiosyncrasies. Um, So, I mean, there's there's been a, a there's a sort of historic um, bid, sort of also partly as a result of sort of the war and fascism and so on, the idea that Italy would become a, a sort of modern and democratic power through its uh, its involvement in in a common European organisation. Um, the problem with this, as particularly seen over the course of the sort of post Maastricht period, is that Italy has been absolutely uh, decimated by the by its involvement in the euro in mean, italian manufacturing capacity has fallen by 30 percent in the last 10 years uh, and it's one of actually very few countries which is in a worse off position economically now than it was before the crisis um, but nonetheless there's this totally transversal sort of political consensus which is the reason why italy is screwed is because italians don't work hard enough uh, because they take their pensions too early, uh, because um, the state spends too much, uh, and the public debt is too high. Even though actually Italian uh, public spending is actually about half of the EU average, um, and basically also the the specific measures that uh, Euro- uh, European Central Bank of Order Liberal Rules have imposed on Italy, uh, certainly in the early 2010s, was basically just suicidal budget slashing. Um, What's one of the strange dynamics in this is that actually the the Lega Nord, which is the biggest sort of far right party, actually in the early 90s was itself uh, one of the biggest sort of forces pushing this kind of thing. Um, so the idea basically the corrupt, uh, sort of particularly southern Italy, sort of in the hands of mafiosi and like corrupt local Christian Democrats could be overcome by a sort of Thatcher style revolution. Um, so one, that's indeed one of the reasons why the the leader of the of the uh, Pew Europa, so there's this party called uh, More Europe, which is part of the Democrats coalition, 
and uh, a former foreign minister is its leader, Emma Bonino. So even though she's actually the most most pro-European uh, sort of uh, liberal party, but she actually st- stood for the Lega Nord in the 1994 general election. Um, so you have this sort of weird um, uh, sort of consensus across the parties that what endless needs to be done is to sort of hack away at the Italian state, uh, even though it's already very small and decrepit. Of course, the problem also is that because it's so uh, terrible and inefficient, uh, the Italian population have very little faith in it and so are quite averse to the kind of uh, sort of infrastructure spending projects or such like that might actually modernize Italy. Could, could I just just to ask about the um, the Lega Nord? So you're talking to just two things, I suppose. So one, th- I mean, so w- one interesting link, I suppose, is that the EU has always been associated with cultivating regionalism and decentralization within the member states of the Union, and therefore mm. the link with the league with the Liga is interesting. The other thing is, you say you call it, um, you've said it's far right, um, but I think. Perry Anderson said originally that it was kind of where they draw from is the old base, kind of the old base of anti-fascist partisans and resistance. And it should have been the natural home for a left wing, kind of a strongly rooted kind of left wing social movement. And the fact that it's turned out to be um, the home of um, the home of this kind of populist secessionist and increasingly right wing movement is itself a sign of the defeat of the left. Um, and I, I mean, I remember, um, you know, part of their part of the original kind of um, uh, the motivating the Liga's antipathy towards Rome was also this idea that it was controlled by old um, a cabal of old elites. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit mm. more about that right wing drift. Yeah, I mean, the the contradiction in the Lega is that the secessionist thing, the idea of splitting the north from the south isn't necessarily linked to the aspect of being uh, of the hard or far right. Um, so that's best epitomized by its, its founding leader, uh, Umberto Bossi, who was its leader kind of throughout the 90s. He actually received a prison sentence for saying that, um, that members of the Lega should basically go around turfing fascists out of their houses. And he would actually often invoke the rhetoric of the resistance. And without doubt, particularly in Lombardy and um, Liguria, uh, the Lega is in the northwest of Italy. The Lega certainly has taken over the old communist base. Um, but what, um, whereas under Bossi's leadership, it was a certainly right wing party, um, but uh, a sort of almost uh, in certain certain of its regions, even a, a libert- kind of libertarian or Thatcherite one, uh, and in others drawing on the on the left. Uh, under Ma- Matteo Salvini's leadership, it has consciously modelled itself on the Front National. Uh, and indeed, that's been, so over the last three or four years, that's been where it's moved into the South and tried to compete with um, more traditionally uh, sort of post-fascist parties. Uh, and as an illustration of this, when the party actually began to organise nationally, and not only in the North, uh, Bossi, its former leader, actually called Salvini a fascist, uh, which is not to say that Salvini really is a fascist, but there's certainly a tension between uh, its sort of uh, traditional northern republican identity and then the attempt to create a more kind of plebeian and far-right uh, group. 
this is also uh, epitomized in the tension between so uh, although the Lega had for several years called for a referendum on leaving the eurozone basically its northern base has no interest in that and that's part of the reason why it's been dropped in the run-up to the to the uh, election but didn't, uh, they, didn't the Lega originally, wasn't it originally resistant to joining the Euro because that would put pay to its secessionist ambitions? Am I understanding that right? Um, I think that might be true, yes. Um, but uh, the, the, the kind of contradiction there, though, is that the idea of a Europe of regions actually well, sort of catered to what the Lega wanted in the sense that they were, they were kind of thinking, perhaps you could actually say a bit like the Catalans, a bit like kind of we'll be welcomed into the fold of the kind of center and it will allow us to ignore the periphery even more and actually that that process has accelerated since uh the uh over the last um sort of 15 20 years uh which is that the because basically if you look at uh the the history of italy the remarkable constant is that the uh, north-south divide has never uh, been attenuated even slightly and uh, now it's actually they're actually accelerating apart. That's uh, but hasn't the Liga? It's dropped its secessionism, right? Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's even literally dropped the word North from its name. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that's. I mean that's absolutely fascinating. The 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 role of of Europe in in, in Italian politics. Um, I mean, and I think Ben though had had a quest had a couple of questions about some of the other issues that seem to have been reported at least in. The British press as being dominant in the in the election build-up. It seems for me that the growth of the Liga has also been linked to the contemporary role of immigration in Italian politics. One of the stories that frequently appears in the English language press is just about migrants dying off the coast of Sicily or a recent attack by a local politician where he killed a number of African immigrants, I believe, as well. He didn't as- so he he did uh, do a terrible attack where he shot lots of people, but no one actually died. Yes, and uh, the sort of idea that uh, the I mean, it's also linked to this idea of like Italy's different to us; it's more racist than us, even when they support very similar policies. Can you just give us a sort of idea of the role of immigration in contemporary Italian politics, and particularly how this relates to this election? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. Really, the, the, the kind of structuring dynamic is in Italy, there is no real history. Well, there's very weak history of anti-racist struggles. There are very few kind of settled migrant or ethnic minority communities. Uh, Italy is, of course, a country of emigration, uh, which doesn't necessarily foster sympathy to immigration. Uh, and also there's this kind of the famous kind of solidarity of the bell tower, uh, the sort of you know the idea of the local village or district where there's a sort of community solidarity doesn't necessarily open up to well to, to solidarity with incomers. Also, of course, the current situation has to be seen against the backdrop of a sort of pervasive sense of of national decline and decline of the West. Um, the the problem with the the handling of the refugee crisis is that um, Italian government's policies as a sort of uh, receiver country has uh was previously in the sort of Berlusconi period was to basically pay Gaddafi to stop people from crossing over uh which worked uh for them until until Gaddafi was overthrown and, and now the Italian state's policy is a is a sort of mix of um well so basically sort of trying 
to get people to move on and away from Italy who, who come in. Um, so I think there's a kind of generalized hostility to migrants, um, but also really it's very, very wrapped up with the question of the idea that it's expensive for uh, Italy to, to uh, take in uh, refugees specifically. Um, so basically because of the Dublin agreement, uh, the Italy is meant to, according to the EU, to basically keep uh, refugees on its own soil and then is given a certain amount of money with which to uh, to sort of keep them in, in shelters and such like. And basically, lots of corruption scandals have centered on these shelters themselves. So there was a famous thing in, uh, in Rome uh, three or four years ago, uh, Mafia Capitale, where basically the city government was paying mafiosi 35 euros a day per uh, migrant to uh, offer them shelter and basically they were just stealing all the money um, and so you get this kind of like very uh, confused discussion of the migration crisis in general where it becomes a sort of cipher for a sort of general distrust of the state and also a sense of uh, it's all a waste of money um, I mean I think I think one one thing to be wary of is this kind of idea very present in, in say, the, the Guardian and such like, which is kind of like the Democrats are resisting arriving, a, a rising wave of racism, which comes from the Lager nod. Uh, because although the Lager certainly has adopted harsh anti-migrant uh, positions uh, or rhetoric, as has indeed the uh, the Five Star Movement, its leader Luigi Di Maio complained of NGOs operating a Mediterranean taxi to take in migrants. Uh, even like say the PD Interior Minister uh, Marco Miniti, like for example, when the when the shooting you mentioned took place, he said, uh, "So the fascist terrorist shot uh, six uh, African migrants." His response was, well, I did try and cut migrant crossings in order that this kind of attack wouldn't happen. Um, this brings me to a follow-up question in relation to our, our favorite uh, newspaper of the center-left, The Guardian. It's really been a theme in the English media of late that there's a resurgence of Italian fascism and sort of similar to their coverage of Trump or uh, the French elections fascism's around the corner it's on the doorstep it's really uh building up in italy and they've really run very little stories about berlusconi this contemporary uh center left but a lot of sort of stories about what seems to be small fascist movements and how uh much vibrance and uh sort of momentum they have right now mm. how real is this fascist threat in italy and could you give us a bit of a, the idea of where fascism stands in regards to uh, post-war Italian politics and its broader relationship to the Italian right? Yeah, I mean, the difficulty I always have is that when you sort of play down the fascist threat, uh, it's easy to sort of run into the accusation of sort of not caring about the people who are or its victims or who are under attack from fascist groups. Uh, and of course, there was a recent attack by a, a fascist saluting uh, a militant um, in which he, as I say, he opened fire on, on six people. But then again, you know, I mean, there was a, a fascist terrorist attack in Britain uh, less than two years ago, but no one would say that there's a rising wave of fascism. Uh, and I think it's important, well, actually some people would, uh, but um, I think it's important to, to sort of understand 
the 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 problem that does exist in in with some sort of sobriety i mean the so Casa Pound, who has been very extensively covered in both Italian and uh, foreign press, I think there's. I think firstly, it's that they they kind of serve basically as a means with which to smear the centre right because of a sort of vague uh, allegation that they're somehow in cahoots or that people like Berlusconi have basically like encouraged the rise of fascist groups. Uh, and then also, I think it's just because it's uh, so they're seen as kind of glamorous and cool and edgy and dangerous uh, in a way which the far left are not. Um, of course, also part of it is a kind of reactionary cultural pessimism, very widespread among Italian liberals, which is kind of the, as if like Italy were sort of constitutively reactionary, uh, that it's never got over World War Two uh, and this kind of trope which in turn feeds the kind of um, hope for the outside saviour from Europe uh, kind of vision of politics. In reality, uh, the, the, you know, in, in most of the post-war period, from the 50s until the early 90s, um, the, the MSI, a, a fascist uh, party represented in Parliament, had as much as 8 or 9% of the vote across several decades and I'd be very surprised if fascist groups got more than 1% uh, in the election on Sunday. Uh, the Casa Pound is the, the, the biggest organized fascist militant group. Uh, it controls several uh, sort of liceo, like kind of high school students' unions in Rome. Uh, it has some... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it has some... Um, Sort of militant demos and so on. Although recently they were caught uh, photoshopping pictures of their own demo to make it look three times bigger. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and they, uh, like the SWP, have a yearly <laughs> festival to uh, advertise their uh, their uh, publications and have a bookshop. But really, I mean, and you know, they have some kind of you know, like that kind of golden dawn thing of kind of giving out food and they only give it to. Uh, you know, white Italians and such like. But nonetheless, I think the actual activities they do are very, uh, they're very, they have a kind of uh, megaphone of the Italian press sort of amplifying everything they do uh, because it constitutes this sort of uh, bogeyman. Um, but really, I mean, I just don't think that they really have any kind of grip on on sort of the public consciousness and, uh, you know, at, at all, really. Uh, we're talking about tiny tiny subcultures okay, i mean so it's easy it's easy enough to go to rome and see like a building with mussolini's name on it or find some fascist group but the idea that i mean fascism is far weaker than it's ever been at any point in republican history i mean in the, in the 70s fascist terrorists killed uh, well over 100 people if not several hundreds whereas you know now that they're they're very much depleted as a force you can find lots of local examples of them on the rise, but I think overall it's not really a, a dynamic movement. Okay, so so it's not to repeat the error of the media in amplifying too much discussion about fascism and giving it undue time and space. Um, it'd be interesting to return a little bit to the question of of the migrant crisis and how much migration and racism plays. I mean, you mentioned that it acts as a cipher for mistrust of the Italian state itself. To what extent does this uh, interlink with mistrust of, of Europe? I mean, because uh, I mean specifically of the EU, because traditionally, traditionally, Europe, uh, Italy had one of the highest levels of support amongst main EU nations for the EU, and I think that has 
mm. that has weakened over recent times and how how do, does that interlink at all with the questions of migration and racism um yes it does um okay so so one a further difficulty of the italian situation is there's a quite a big divide between anti-fascism which is something that's been carried forth by the sort of institutional left for some decades and then kind of consequential anti-racism which really is restricted to a much smaller group of militants um but um i mean the the european question is interesting because um i said there's a very diffuse sentiment that joining the euro was a mistake but that italy would be unable to extricate itself from it um because of basically a lack of faith in uh, or basically the lack of any sort of party or leadership with any sort of credibility to actually execute uh, leaving the euro so there's just this kind of uh, resignation to the to the stagnation which it, which has produced um in among italians uh, among older italians there's there's certainly this kind of inherited sensibility which is this sort of association of europe with peace and democracy and modernity uh which really doesn't have a grip among younger Italians uh so there's a, a survey a couple of months ago which basically showed that um among under 45s most Italians would like to leave the euro uh by a fairly narrow margin i think 54 to 46% yet among the older group uh, over 45 years old uh, they're basically 3 to 1 in favor of staying in the euro uh it's also true that if you look at like the five star movement uh, that that it has its base among those same younger voters and it is a a quite eurosceptic party though it's now abandoned its uh, call to leave the euro uh perhaps as a, a sort of recognition that it wouldn't actually be able to pull it off um so i think the 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 views towards europe are certainly um becoming a lot more negative also of course because as i say because there was this there was when italy joined the euro uh, all of the main parties said that this was going to shower italy with benefits was going to provide the stability that otherwise was missing uh, that it would modernize the country and so on and really this acted in a powerful way to discredit uh, the european and both sort of italian and european institutions in tandem uh, because it was meant to be a magic fix and it turned out to go very badly uh, as i say you know italy has almost 40% youth unemployment but i mean so th- this sort of the lingering especially amongst the younger people uh, sense that uh, the eu they've been missold uh, the whole eu package and deal that's not being given any political expression now by any major political actor or party in in italy right now right there's no leadership um pushing towards exit from the euro or from the eu at the moment no not really so um the the lega and five star movement had each been for uh euro exit but they've basically they they kind of uh they cavil against the euro and complain about it but they've given up their plans uh to hold a referendum or anything nonetheless i wouldn't be surprised if uh basically so the lega kind of abandoned that policy as the price of its coalition with Berlusconi i think if Berlusconi is in government again with the democrats and the lega are in opposition again they'll probably resume that call for euro exit uh on the left there is a, a kind of far left party which calls for a break with the eu treaties it's called potere al popolo 
but uh, I think they'd be pretty unlikely to, to get into Parliament, for, uh, to be honest, and uh, they're not kind of clearly for Euroexit. So, I mean, the whole worry over, like, across Europe um, over the past maybe year or two years has been looking forward to upcoming elections, which might provide, which might prove to be a, a threat to, to European integration or to maintenance even of the euro as a project. Um, there was talk about the French elections, German elections and so on, but Italy was the big one on, on the radar. Like early in 2018, this is going to be the real sort of uh, the b- big risk and the markets are worried and so on. Has that, I guess, sort of dissipated? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I think though the problem is that kind of narrative, actually in a way a, a bit like the sort of fear of tiny fascist groups, it kind of adds this kind of um, sense of sort of drama and upheaval, which I actually think is is actually one of the ways in which Italian politics is sort of a forerunner for, for other countries, which is that you have this kind of performative intensity of politics uh, particularly in, indeed in the in the sort of attempt to to see everything through the prism of fascism and anti-fascism or through this idea that Italy is going to like crash out of the euro and that it's kind of chaotic and so on whereas the reality is that underneath the surface of the sort of battle of identities Italian politics never changes uh, <laughs> wow yeah, okay. eternal recurrence it's <laughs> it's Italy has had 65 governments since World War II, and they were all Christian Democrats. Mm. Like, even after the Christian Democrats disappeared, the, the governments <laughs> were still Christian Democrats. They didn't change anything. Berlusconi had no economic policy when he was in office. I mean, the, the, the Democrats sort of were a bit more right-wing, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I mean, really, it's just uh, because it's the whole system just works on the basis of this kind of precarious balance between various sort of historic and vested interests, which also helps explain why there's this sort of something like the five star movement, which is sort of opposed to and outside of that uh, for those you know, young people unemployed who can't access the patronage system. Presumably but, things would change if Italy did crash out of the euro. Yeah, absolutely. But but basically the, the, the political will uh, isn't, I mean, Italy isn't going to crash out of the euro. Um, it, the, the thing is, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit like, uh, you know, people talk about Italy as if it were kind of like, you know, like Greece or, or well, you know, even Greece didn't actually uh, crash out the euro, of course. But oh, I, sure. I mean, but I mean, obviously, Italy is a is a pretty wealthy country with a pretty conservative uh, and old voter base who are really a, a blocking any kind of change of that kind, and parties like five star uh you know i mean i'm not a supporter of five star movement although i think it gives expression to like very real uh social grievances as i say massive youth unemployment people who have no chance of of you know um sorry by way of example more than 70 percent of italians between 18 and 34 live with their parents mm. like that's a really grim social malaise because you know people cannot get on in life they you know they they lack the kind of either the sort of vision of social progress or the sort of personal dignity that comes from having a, a job and such like so five star movement is strongly supported by those people but basically it's way too fractious and uh, you know it has no serious perspective for for like you know the kind of transform transformation of the italian economy that would be necessary for it to 
uh, leave and then survive leaving the eurozone so so, uh, so go on yeah so so it's while i would very much argue that italy should leave the euro uh, and indeed in a in a in a sort of planned and orchestrated way uh, really there's the political leadership for that really isn't there so david before we delve a bit deeper into the fascinating history of italian politics and the crisis of post-war democracy um i just wanted to to sort of bring it back to sunday's election because i guess one of the things that we want to provide our our listeners with is some intelligent things to say at the the dinner parties <laughs> or the cocktails that they go yeah, for yeah the cocktail or, parties or you on the picket or on the snowy picket line um yeah, as it may absolutely. be um but yeah so is, is there is there anything um any kind of salient point about the election that we haven't that we haven't covered yet and if and if if you think um what what might be the outlook for the left in in this election and then maybe in, in its aftermath as well yes i mean i think that basically the important dynamic which we should also cover is the collapse of the democratic party in the 2014 european elections the pd got 40 percent uh now it's very unlikely to score anything more than 21 or 22 percent uh, its voter base has abandoned it. Um, so among blue-collar workers, the Democrats are only in fourth place. Uh, they have about 12% of the vote among blue-collar workers, and Five Star have about 40%. And basically the people who vote for uh, the PD are elderly middle-class people who live in areas where the Communist Party used to be strong and who are socially liberal. Uh, a lot of the other sort of old industrial areas where the Communist Party used to be strong vote for the Lega. Um, and, you know, it's the Sunday elections, it's the same day as the SPD is going to vote on whether it's going to be in the grand coalition mm. with the Christian Democrats. And to be honest, I think it's pretty likely the Italian PD is going to join a new, um, uh, basically a centrist coalition together with uh, Forza Italia. I mean, so in terms of your 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 avatar at the cocktail party, <laughs> um, really. Um, so if the basically on Sunday night, the elect the result won't come in very quickly. Uh, the polling stations don't end until eleven uh, eleven p.m. Uh, that they um, the exit polls are totally unreliable, and also it's the first time with a new poll it with a new uh, voting system so it might actually take a couple of days before there's a result at all um even if the result looks like it's a, a coalition of the right um i wouldn't necessarily expect berlusconi to respect that um uh, because basically so um berlusconi is barred from taking office because of his tax fraud conviction <laughs> Within the right-wing coalition, there's a pact between Forza Italia and the Lega, according to which whichever party gets more votes will get to choose the prime minister. Uh, that's most likely to be Forza Italia. Basically, they're polling like 16%, the Lega about 13 But all of the candidates who Berlusconi is suggesting for premier are centrist pro-Europeans. Uh, so, for example, Tajani, who's the leader of the European People's Party, in the European Parliament, and then Mario Draghi, who's uh, the you know the governor of the central bank. There's no way that either of those figures is going to lead a government which includes the Lega. 
Um, so I think it's much more likely that there'll be protracted coalition talks. Um, a further complication is that um, I think it's quite, there won't necessarily be a grand coalition as such. Uh, what Italy's had for the last six years were basically various forms of what's called a technical government, which is where you say, oh, it's only temporary, and then you include lots of unelected technocrats, and then those same technocrats never have to be up for election again, so they can basically get away with doing what they like. Uh, so, uh, And that kind of arrangement would be kind of supported in Parliament by both the Democrats and Forza Italia, but without them sort of bloodying their hands. Uh, so so, so pr protracted negotiations and then a gr gross coalition, that's what uh, is likely to happen <laughs> after Sunday. My, my prediction is a long wait for an inconclusive outcome. <laughs> sounds... Stay tuned, folks. <laughs> yeah. Which sounds like the future of European politics in general. It does indeed, yeah. <clears throat> Well, yeah, absolutely. People should be listening more to Italianists right now uh, <laughs> because we're, we're seeing this uh, sort of thing. Because basically, what what it the reason why I think Italy is indeed a sort of uh, warning from the present is that because um, in lots of European countries, uh, if you look at say Germany or uh, Britain or in some measure France and certainly Spain, although the political centre is very discredited you still have something remains of the old uh, sort of class-based parties. Uh, although their social base has withered uh, they, and they lack the kind of ideologies of the 20th century, they have a kind of identitarian attachment uh, and sort of, uh, kind of uh, sedimented social power. So they're still a real factor in the, in the sort of parliamentary arithmetic. Um, the difference in Italy is because the whole system collapsed at the end of the 1980s um the lego is the oldest party and only 26 years old that means that the parties exist net that exist now are a very immediate reflection of the current social structure um in the sense of um very great fragmentation uh, total lack of um so visions of the future. I mean, it would be bizarre for an Italian prime minister even to talk about what he was planning to do over a five-year period. Um, the kind of there's a kind of something of the old kind of fascist, anti-fascist identity uh, lingers on, but really the overall picture is fragmentation, atomization, and indeed a kind of meaninglessness. Uh, in in that basically the the parties change their names and alliances from one day to the next. Um, so, so therefore, you have a, a great deal of performance uh, covering the fact that basically uh, no change is, is possible. And of course, you also have the element of the outsourcing of basically all important political decisions to uh, European uh, European uh, institutions, which kind of allows Italy's rulers to both kind of constantly complain about the treatment they're getting while also doing absolutely nothing about it and claiming just to be the victims of European rules. So that's absolutely fascinating on, on this Sunday's election. But to move from the, the current social structure, as you put it, to digging a bit deeper into the history of Italian politics, Ben, you had some, some questions to, to kick us off on this second part of the podcast. Well, let's start with talking about what happened to the Italian left. 
It wasn't too long ago when the Italian Communist Party was the largest uh, radical political party in the Western Hemisphere. In fact, uh, as Perry Anderson put it a few years ago in an uh, essay on the, what happened to the Italian left, the Italian left was once the largest, most impressive popular movement for social change in Western Europe. It also mm. had a huge tradition in terms of worker militancy, uh, ultra-left and the far-left uh, tendencies, as well as a whole decade instead of one year of social unrest, a long 68. What happened to the Italian left? It doesn't really seem that you could identify any significant force at, that could be called a left party or a left movement or a left coalition or social movement in Italy at present going into this election. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you certainly can't. Um, yeah, I mean, the <clears throat> the problem is is that the the Italian Communist Party is was a, was a powerful and interesting and, and in many ways successful movement for reasons that are very closely connected to why it ultimately failed. Uh, basically, after um, the after World War Two in which uh, the Communist Party had been the largest force in the resistance, uh, but of course resistance that only took, sort of only managed to liberate the, the country's territory with the help of the Allies. Um, the Communist strategy was very much rooted in the fact that Italy was falling into the Western sphere of influence, was of course occupied by Britain and the United States, um, and therefore it staked its sort of strategy on uh, trying to create a space for itself within the Western capitalist order uh, that prevailed in Italy. Um, but the, the contradiction in that was that part of its base was never really reconciled to that strategy. Um, so actually, even after 45, you have several occurrences of, uh, sort of militants who sort of kept onto their weapons after the resistance. Uh, thinking that ultimately the hour of insurrection is going to come. Um, so there's a kind of streak of radicalism in the party, uh, which is sort of reinforced despite the sort of overall, you know, it's, it's often actually said that, that the, the Communist Party was kind of like the Italian social democracy, because of course Italy didn't have a big social democratic or labor party. Um, but I think it's more complicated than that. Um, really, the basic dynamic was because the communists were in opposition, were the, sorry, the biggest opposition, the Christian Democrats were pretty much guaranteed to stay in government uh, and indeed would block together with the other parties to keep out the communists. Uh, that, that itself carried various ills, such as the Christian Democrats basically owning the state machine, which partly explains the corruption and so on. Um, but also the, the effect of that was because the communists couldn't get into government, um, they basically built up counter institutions to provide the kind of uh, solidarity, work placement, services, uh, some co-ops and such like, to, to basically make up for the lack of a Italian welfare state. Um, and from 1970 onwards, they were also able to control regional governments. So basically, the Communist Party is governed by this dynamic, which is like this huge sense of potential and this real rootedness, uh, about 8 million people at the peak uh, belonged to co-ops run by the Communist Party, and it had as many as 2 million members. Um, and also, of course, this was outside the national government. So uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini famously called it uh, a country within a country. 
uh, and also a sort of country of honesty within a, a dishonest one, a uh, country of morality and you know motherhood and apple pie and so on. Uh, but anyway, it was a it was a very powerful force which also couldn't get into government and uh, never indeed did get there. Um, but in a certain light, that's also a bit like what social democratic parties were like generally before uh, universal suffrage. If you think of the German social democracy before World War One, it has a quite similar dynamic as in because it's barred from taking power, it creates this kind of counter state. Um, but which doesn't actually last the moment where it finally is able to enter office. Uh, the contradiction of the Italian Communist Party is that while it plans this kind of Italian road to socialism, I'm sort of praised by sort of a lot of the European left on the basis that it has this kind of autonomous uh, sort of route, this autonomous model, like I mentioned. So, you know, not just like nationalizing everything, but rather creating all these co-ops and like local community activism and so on. The problem is, is all of that is made possible precisely because of the Cold War dynamic, which is the real thing keeping it out of office. You know, the reason why even during the historic compromise in the 70s, it uh, the Christian Democrats won't uh, actually allow them into the ministries to be in the government. They just support it from the outside. So then basically, when the Soviet Union collapses, because that um, basically destroys the Cold War dynamic, it provides the right wing of the party with the um with the kind of final excuse to be like well let's just become a social democratic party of course there's demoralization among the left and so on at the same time a certain kind of capitalist triumphalism um so then the party tries to make this uh you know in uh, 91 changes its name becomes called the democrats of the left uh then actually very quickly throws off the entire communist and Marxist tradition um, in basically a bid to capture the apparently empty political center. Uh, what also happens, of course, is, as I said, because the Christian Democrats were held in office for so long, uh, were able to occupy the state, the Christian Democrats becomes a kind of catch-all party with lots of factional interests of local fiefdoms and so on. And when the Communist Party collapses, uh, so when the Communist Party changes its name, uh, and, the, and the Soviet Union collapses, the Christian Democrats lose the kind of uh, internal solidarity they'd enjoyed during the Cold War period. It's In a way, it's quite similar to things you see in, um, I mean, to take a more extreme example, <clears throat> uh, you could say that uh, one of the main factors in obviously the downfall of apartheid South Africa was that the removal of the communist threat uh, removed the kind of conservative reactionary bloc uh, that, was, that was keeping it uh, alive. Um, so basically, when the Christian democracy then collapses, you have this like general uh, um, void of political representation, uh, which at first it seems like the communists are going to fill in the guise of the democratic left, uh, but then Berlusconi enters the fray in order to combat them. Um, also, of course, it's without doubt um, you know from the eighties onwards. So from nineteen eighty, the defeat of the Fiat strike is kind of something like the Italian version of the British miners' strike of 84 as a big symbolic defeat. And and the fact that the, the sort of um, trade union type mobilization was so weakened sort of encourages the Communist Party to sort of finally abandon its old identity. Also factors, for example, like the fact that most of the former partisans from World War II had started dying off 
Berlinguer, for example. Enrique Berlinguer was the leader of the party in the 70s, uh, where he died in 1984. That was when the resistance generation finally lost control of the party. And all these things kind of encouraged its abandonment of its communist identity when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, I wonder if you're too. I wonder if you're too kind to them, David. Um, if you have like the, you know, I mean, in the first part of the Cold War, they're loyal, deeply loyal to Moscow. Toliati spends um, World War Two hiding under a desk in Moscow. You know, <laughs> um, then when Eurocom, you know, they kind of they're one of the first parties to jump Eurocommunist, which is like the Stalinist wing <clears throat> of Stalinism, separating from Stalinism. Um, they gave us hegemony, you know, so this kind of, um, which is the kind of, uh, the great epitaph of left-wing politics in the, in the, um, in the post kind of second world war period, making a virtue of necessity in terms of translating kind of cultural influence and having lots of tenured academic positions into some kind of great, um, successful, insurgency or capture of ground in civil society um deeply <laughs> conservative a deeply conservative party and part of the problem i think with the italian left as well is the very fact that it's been venerated for so long from abroad particularly the that ugly misshapen italian hunchback um theorist who has so kind of <laughs> held back left-wing politics and Wait, ideas I mean, for so I, I, I long. Like, which, say his name, for, for, the, for, for the benefit of our listeners, say his name, for God's sake. Gramsci, Gramsci. <laughs> say I would, his name. I would disagree about, with you about that, but anyway. You could, you could <laughs> have meant a few people. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who have a lot to answer for, including Antonio Negri. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, the kind of, uh, the insurgency against the Italian, the Italian Stalinism obviously is, um, has a lot to answer for as well, including the yeah. likes of I guess, I mean, all I'm saying I, is I think there is a, there is a much kind of, um, there is a much darker tale that can be told about its failure, precisely despite being a kind of a, you know, with a genuine kind of democratic popular base and its inveterate conservatism, its cowardice, its uh, the historic compromise, its shrinking from power, its substitution of cultural politics for political power. So it's not just that it was shut out. I mean, to some extent, it shows the path of uh, the long march of the institutions and all that bollocks. <laughs> um, sure. I mean, well, firstly, the long march from through the institutions is a Rudy Dutschke uh, quote, uh, but <laughs> um, but but um, no, I mean, but the, the the problem with the the PCI is it has several uh, souls or sensibilities. So I mean, it's not just the party of Euro communism, or like I think there's a certain sense of sort of tracing it through from going okay, so like the desire to stay legal after World War Two gives it and also it's kind of basically the need to defend its own unity demands that it kind of claim that the republican institutions are this great success of its that the, con the thing you still hear a lot today that the italian constitution is kind of uniquely progressive because it was written by the resistance parties and so on like no i mean I, i'd accept certainly that there's a uh, accommodation of uh, the communist party to the Italian state, uh, but as I say, the thing is, is that the fact that it can't really enter national government allows it to hold together um, the more sort of straightforwardly reformist or uh, 
or or or, uh, or even the kind of Euro communist wing, and then a kind of proletarian radicalism. I mean, it's not by chance that actually the most left wing of the party throughout most of its existence is actually a, a left wing proletarian Stalinism. Uh, and when the party ultimately gave up, uh, it was the pro-Soviet wing, so led by Armando Kosuta, who was then the leading force in creating Refondazione Comunista. Um, I think it's unfortunate that the people who refounded the Communist Party didn't really learn anything from the failure of the PC, uh, the PCI, sorry, and uh, basically tried to do the same thing again, sort of putting forward the same kind of anti-fascist and republican sort of themes uh, while losing any real notion of like the kind of socialist end goal. Uh, and that's why Refondazione, which, you know, now, of course, Refondazione, you'd say it's a very small group. You know, in the last elections, it got, well, less than 2%. Refondazione, about 15, 20 years ago, was the great white hope of the European left. Uh, I think you're probably right to say that uh, there's a certain problem in terms of the Italian left uh, sort of uh, accepting and being flattered by uh, sort of for, uh, fawning uh, sort of parties in other countries. But, you know, Rifondazioni was a communist party which was like reasonably well-rooted in social movements, better so than a party like Die Linke uh, or the French Communist Party, for example, uh, and which got, uh, you know, over 10% of the votes on several occasions. So, you know, I think there was some potential there, but then basically its problem was that it never really got over the sense of seeing itself as part of a generic centre-left and indeed thinking that the the that uh, basically the thing that distinguished it was being even more hysterically anti-Berlusconi, uh, seeing him as a fascist and such like. So um, just to backtrack a little bit to this conversation, I think we can't really move forward in terms of our discussion of Italian history and politics without speaking about the collapse of the political system in the early 90s. Both Alex mm. and myself live in Brazil and we're currently going through a sort of similar process in which a bunch of unelected officials, judges, are sort of dissolving the political compromise that's prevailed since 1988 through anti-corruption mm. investigations. But in this case, it's more uh, blatantly uh, right-wing. But in the case of it of Italy, you had the Christian Democrats, as you mentioned, were able to rule as a de facto one-party state through the use of everything from dirty tricks, alliances with the mafia, and widespread corruption, uh, CIA links, and all sorts of intrigue, as well as just Cold War politics. It was assumed that the whole-scale purge of Italian politics was a sort of rotten, corrupt element would open the door to a new modernizing center-left force. But it didn't. Can mm. you speak a bit what happened with the so-called clean hands investigations and what effect this has had in Italian political life uh, in what we call now as lawfare? Yes, yeah, so um, the, basically uh, the, the final um, governments before the collapse of the, the so-called First Republic, uh, so Cold War era Italy, were uh, the, the, uh, basically a cartel between the Christian Democrats and a bunch of uh, much smaller parties who rotated uh, the prime ministerial role among themselves. Um, so the, uh, so the, the prime minister from 83 to 87 was Bettino Craxi, 
who was the first uh, socialist prime minister of Italy. When I say socialist, uh, it's a totally centrist party already in the 80s. And he was actually, uh, Silvio Berlusconi was actually in that party uh, in the 80s. Um, And basically the clean hand scandal uh, was launched in 1992 and its initial focus was Craxi's government and its dealings with Berlusconi, among others, uh, which then very um, spread very widely into a general uh, investigation of corruption in the Italian political system. And you had some sort of um, judge, uh, some, some magistrates who were became some sort of national political figures, most notably Antonio Di Pietro, um, who said that his plan was indeed to destroy all of the old parties. And uh, he did. Um, so basically the Christian Democratic Party, the Socialist Party, the Republican, the Liberal Party, all the parties that emerged from World War II were forced to dissolve because at uh, one point or another, actually a majority of all MPs in the Italian parliament were uh, came under investigation. And basically the, the total amount of embezzlement uh, by uh, MPs in the 1980s amounted to something the equivalent of like $5 billion dollars. Uh, which is obviously a hefty sum of money. Um, the problem was is that you have this idea in, inherent within this, which is kind of like we have this decrepit uh, system and the way that we're going to regenerate Italian politics is to um, is to enforce kind of honesty and to get non-corrupt politicians where the corrupt ones were previously. Um, this is kind of partly associated with the centre-left because, of course, in the sense it came from the Communist Party, excluded from office, or unable to reach office at least, um, they were relatively untainted. Um, the problem with this approach to politics is, uh, and much to, to my amusement, uh, is basically all of the people who stood up and accused um, the Christian Democrats and then Berlusconi and so on of being corrupt and into embezzlement and so on were themselves invariably brought down by similar accusations. Um, so, so for example, the the, the Lega Nord uh, in the early 90s actually greatly profited from the clean hand scandal, the, the, as I said, the generalized prosecutions of politicians to say, well, Italy is kind of backward and uh, corrupt and, you know, the local priest and mayor and so on are all in cahoots, whereas like uh, industrial northern Italy is going to lead this kind of Thatcherite revolution. Uh, the problem is, is basically they were also committing massive uh, embezzlement, and Umberto Bossi, their leader, uh, actually received a jail sentence for uh, for embezzlement of state funds. Um, Di Pietro, who I mentioned, who was the leading prosecutor, set up a party of his own called Italy of Values, which claimed to be an apolitical uh, anti-corruption party. And uh, basically, it turned out he had like 48 houses um, <laughs> no way. Um, and was like completely demolished. Um, also, what part of the dynamic, of course, is that um, basically, as soon as anyone realizes that this is even a possibility, basically, to respond to the accusation with a counter accusation, you have this like vast apparatus of private investigators and so on, hired, uh, hired by all of the parties to uh, you know, dig up dirt on each other, uh, and indeed they find it. 
I mean, it, it's, um, un- it's uncanny uh, hearing all, um, this and having read about it in the past and so on, that the degree to which so much of what happened in Italy in the early 90s presages what happens and is happening in Brazil right now. And I think we should be mm. fairly blunt about this beyond just the cases of Italy and Brazil, but maybe be a little bit, uh, you know, be, be a bit of a futurist in this in, in trying to say, you know, can we say that this form, these forms of anti-corruption investigations, anti-corruption politics more broadly, in some sense, um, might be a feature of, of politics in the in the forthcoming period, um, because it does seem to be to, to recur in many places. And there's several features to this. I mean, just to enumerate a couple, you have a broad kind of popular anti-corruption sentiment, which uh, both reinforces a certain anti-political sentiment, but at the same time, uh, is also a, a form of expressing uh, political disgruntlements or, or, you know, problems with public services or lack of representation, so on, become channeled mm. through the language of corruption, right? They're all corrupt. They don't represent yeah. us. Let's get rid of them. Um, and also at the more elite levels, at institutional levels, the use of anti-corruption investigations in a very tactical manner to pursue certain political ends. I mean, my understanding yeah. from Italy is that you know, there it targeted, as you said, Kraxi's uh, socialists, um, and generally was a more econo- uh, generally a more ecumenical um, sort of process in attacking, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a large, large swathes of the political spectrum. Whereas in Brazil, it seems to have very well has very much targeted the left, particularly the Workers' Party, and all the major scalps have been either of the Workers' Party or of right wing politicians who uh, have since proved themselves to be irrelevant politically. So they were easy scalps; they didn't damage the political system uh, or the running of, of kind of establishment politics in any way. Um, mm. So I don't know if you want to comment on, on any bit of that. So one reason I, I, th- I think maybe Italy and Brazil might have in common, uh, and I wonder how quite how generalizable it is, is that I think there's a definite link between the kind of malfunctioning state apparatus and the generation of corruption in terms of like, because services and so on literally don't work, it kind of demands corruption as the way of getting around that, um, as in even for like ordinary citizens. Yeah. And that, that helps kind of feed a, a, a culture of where like the state is kind of unreliable um, and therefore you have to basically use personal favors to get anywhere. Immediately has extremely entrenched kind of patronage in all sorts of institutions. Um, but then, I mean, the, the problem is like that in turn feeds this kind of thing, which is like people don't want to, in, people don't want the state to pay to improve those same state institutions because they think the money will be embezzled. Mm. So it's like in Italy now, even though there's like massive uh, unemployment and there's like obvious like holes in its infrastructure, like, you know, the South, the trains are just like a joke, but it's like, people and indeed the, the left are very hostile to big spending projects because they just assume that the money will be wasted. And so you have this kind of cycle of running down institutions and the state and so on. And then this kind of uh, dislike of, uh, of, uh, of state power, which never actually leads to any sort of potential for reform. That, but then again, I mean, I, I think you can also look at sort of wealthier or apparently more functional societies where you have this kind of uh, judicial discourse uh, and it sort of fits partly into the idea of kind of experts who will intervene to save democracy yeah. from itself 
I mean, I mean in, if you think of the English example, I mean, it's kind of forgotten a bit now, but you know, it, when there was the expenses scandal in 2009, you had the kind of proliferation of like independence uh, and this, you know, kind of ju- there was a party even called Jury Team. Oh. Uh, <laughs> this is nightmarish stuff, really. <laughs> and it's a very reactionary idea because it's basically saying that democracy is irreformable, so therefore you need this outside force that's going to intervene and save it. Um, I'm just going to um, just ask uh, a little bit more on this. So what actually happened to Italian corruption after this huge investigation? It doesn't seem to have gone down any bit. I mean, the, the organized crime and all these seedy elements seem to be as powerful as ever. Mm. Did it have any and, effect and for, at all? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Did it really have any effect? <laughs> uh, I mean, it destroyed the particular political parties and such like, but I wouldn't say that it, uh, it didn't lead to any long-term resolution of the problem, no. I mean, the, 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 I'd say that probably like literally like the mafia is probably weaker now than it was, say, 30 years ago. But I think that that's only a, a small part of the phenomenon. I mean, although the example I'm about to give is a Mafia 1, uh, why not? Because, you know, the, three years ago, there was a thing called Mafia Capitale, the thing I mentioned earlier, which is where the, the migrant shelters uh, funded by the state were put in the hands of mafiosi. Also, you had like particularly amusing stuff in it. Like, So the migrant thing was the kind of visceral thing people hated. But there was another part of it which was like um, mafia were paid uh, to do road resurfacing. And they'd invented like some special type of tarmac that would like dissolve whenever it rained. <laughs> but, I mean, but because it only rains in Italy, like, you know, like once every 10 years, they kind of didn't get caught for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but, yeah, that was a, that was the stealing of well over a billion euros and by a cr- kind of cross parties and such like. I mean, there's a there's an amusing because so this party I mentioned, Italy of Values, that kind of rose up and then died on the altar of being an anti-corruption thing. And then Five Star, they put forward this same thing, which is like, if only we had a sort of efficient and clean state apparatus. Uh, but then basically in the current election, um, t- uh, 10 of their sitting MPs who are re-standing, basically they said this kind of thing, which is like, we're not going to take our parliamentary salaries. We'll give half of it to the ministry for like finance. So it'll go to microcredit for small business. So there's kind of like horrible confection of oh, kind of like... That's like a pile. reactionary cocktail of notes. It's like it basically <laughs> like a strawberry daiquiri of horrible political <laughs> tendencies. Is that yeah. the most reactionary cocktail <laughs> I was trying to think, think of, of? I was trying to think of it, but I mean... Uh, Old fashioned, maybe? <laughs> uh, yeah. Ooh. Nice. It's like the pineapple pizza of uh, <laughs> political reaction. A, 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 a white Russian indeed. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I mean, okay, okay, so, to sh- so let me just to intercede because I want to, because you've already kind of naturally segued us on to, to the next question. I mean, we're discussing Italy as in some way being the country of the future rather than somehow mired in a past. Um, so mm. the second, we've discussed corruption and now you've brought up the, the five star movement. And I guess this would be the second feature of, of somehow Italy being the country of the future. It's a question of populism. Mm. Five star seems to be the party which would one could most easily apply the label of populism amongst those movements labeled populist amongst Europe. I mean, populism is often used as a means to 
uh, used by centrists, uh, by managerialists, by neoliberals, and so on, to discredit uh, democratic alternatives, even of the left or of the right. Basically, anyone who channels any form of social grievance is labeled a populist because they make uh, claims about what the people want, um, rather than being, a, you know, deliberately anti-democratic or foreclosing any democratic alternatives in the way that uh, kind of neoliberal managerialism operates. So, right. I mean, what is what is Five Star Movement? Do you think it can be called populist? Well, the, the, in a way, it, it represents the high point of, of what is often called populism uh, and the sort of various, or at least it sort of is the extreme concentration of certain of the, of the traits you see among the movements called populist. Um, I, the reason I'm sort of hedging is I think like, say people like, who I really have no respect or time for, like um, uh, Mouf and Laclau and so on, they have this kind of idea, which is like you kind of replace class with the idea of like the people, and then the people somehow nonetheless includes this kind of class content. Um, but, and you know, has a sort of strong political identity. Uh, so they would, they would pose their positive view of populism in that sense. What's the really striking thing about the five star movement, and the reason why it combines the worst of all of the other things is that really what defines it is the fact that it's an empty cipher. Um, the reason why it's, it's, it's kind of modernity lies in the fact that although it kind of, you know, they go on about direct democracy and so on, it has like a complete lack of like, um, you know, it, it demands nothing of its members or militants. You know, they literally just like vote to give away their power to politicians who then you know the five-star movement almost never votes in parliament because it would just it would remove its ability to pretend to be something for everyone so what it exists as is a kind of purely negative political space which is like we're the ordinary people who don't like politics and then anyone can invest that with whatever they like from far left to far right and because it doesn't actually take any decisions or do anything or have any policies that have any meaning uh, basically people can feel kind of comforted by the illusion that they're doing something and standing up for themselves whereas actually they're doing nothing um, so I think some of the kind of clicktivism and such like which you see in a lot of these new parties like Podemos and so on the sort of techno uh, yeah yeah so actually that's the other thing about it which is like five star has this very kind of like um, the vision of society is a bit like so in a way, it's a kind of pure democratic idea, which is kind of like we will exactly mirror the will of the people. It sounds like very Naomi Kleinish early 2000s. <laughs> yes, it, it's terrible. Uh, but yeah, but, but I mean, so but therefore all it does is it kind of perfectly, it, it, it like perfectly expresses the generally individualist and atomized retreats from public engagement that characterizes the crisis of of Italy. It's like people don't believe in anything. There's no kind of collective organizations or social representation. Then they hand their vote to a movement that stands for nothing. Uh, also, what happened to me... the Beppe Grillo, the clown? Where, where is he these days? Well, he's sort of taken a step back. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's, so there's this kind of like professionalization of the movement so so he's he began from a much more kind of social protest 
background, uh, not necessarily of, of the left, but you know, you know, originally, originally, Five Star Movement was a kind of coalition of of sort of um, heterogeneous um, protest movements. Like you know, there's this uh, thing called No Tav, which is like they don't want a rail line built between Lyon and um, Turin. Uh, so you know, it's like a mix of like kind of the local population who don't want their houses knocked down, and then like most of the sort of radical left, uh, or it's like for kind of like you know um, net neutrality and for uh, free Wi-Fi and for like against or possibly for, yeah against nuclear power stations, all sorts of you know these kind of ragbag of kind of like really peripheral demands. Um, and also, like very, for example, like uh, so, there's an interesting new book on Five Star, which highlights the fact that uh, Five Star used to love a pussy riot. That makes complete sense. And now is like really pro Putin. That also makes complete sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, is seam- this is a seamless reflection of the current, you know, zeitgeist in terms of political transformations. Yeah, exactly. So, it, of course, it hasn't changed at all. Is the important thing. It's just like those movements died away, or like no one's, everyone stopped caring. So, so, the, so you know. So, there's also because Beppe Grillo was like quite, you know, anti-Euro. Um, sorry, he literally collected signatures demanding a referendum on the euro. Whereas now, under Luigi Di Maio, is uh, part of the falseness of the kind of general in, uh, sort of centre-left coverage of Italian politics is there is absolutely no link whatsoever between being opposed to the euro and being racist. Um, Luigi Di Maio, the current prime ministerial candidate, has very significantly pushed Five Star to the right on migration, as we're saying, provocatively racist things, and has completely abandoned their opposition to the euro. Yeah, um, there was a clown in Brazil who was elected to the parliament and voted for the parliamentary coup here, who recently quit politics, despite having scandal hanging over his head too, out of disgust for the political class and his inability to uh, make a difference as a clown in politics. And it seems like a perfect mirror of the sort of impotence. But of course, I think Beppe Grillo was banned from ever holding office because of manslaughter. Yeah, he killed some people in a car crash. I believe one of the passengers in the car with himself. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Beppe Grillo also is a very unsympathetic figure. I don't know if you know the British comedian uh, Jim Davidson. Uh, be, <laughs> be something yes. of that about him. I'm too, I'm so too it, South African for that. Okay. Uh, think of the most famous white South African. <laughs> you don't. You have I no imagine, idea how nightmarish that is. <laughs> I imagine him blacked up doing an impression of a Jamaican man called Chalky. That's exactly oh, is the right thing. His name is Leon Schuster, and he once did a whole movie dressed up as a black domestic worker, putting a thing on with a midget. Absolutely. Oof. Well, excellent. That sounds. Um, so that's pretty much where the five star are at now, uh, politically. <laughs> Grillo, for the reason you say, uh, was never actually able to hold public office, so therefore amusingly conformed to the general Italian thing of people with no elected office managing everything from behind the scenes. Um, so, so to give a, a good illustration of that, uh, Virginia Raggi, who is the current mayor of Rome, five-star movement, won on a very big wave of support in the working-class areas of Rome in the 2016 election. And uh, when she won, she was made to sign a contract 
that all of her statements would come, oh, sorry, when, no, when she became a candidate for mayor, she was made to sign a contract that all of her public statements would be issued via Beppe Grillo's blog so that they could collect the Google AdSense money on the YouTube videos. <laughs> this is just the worst sort of politics I can possibly imagine. This is like a tech utopian dystopia. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the guy who actually, the kind of guru behind the Five Star Movement, Roberto Casaleggio, who's uh, now uh, dead, uh, he uh, he basically um, was a kind of, so he produced this kind of like, kind of Bilderberg conspiracy type stuff for quite a few years uh, and and sort of the internet democracy as the way out, a bit like kind of par- pirate party type stuff. But also he was actually like a very a much student of sort of neuro-linguistic programming. So basically like he wrote loads of stuff in the 90s, which is like, this is how I'm going to set up a party based on my experience of internet forums. <laughs> and I'm going to use the appearance of extreme democracy to like manipulate people into voting for meaningless stuff, but really I'll make all the decisions. Uh, and so, then he did it <laughs> in practice. Wow, so that's the, uh, that's the so state like of The Scientology Italian. of politics then. Yeah, it's worse, well, that bad. But it's just like, it's just this kind of, I think it typifies a, a, you know, beyond being this kind of weird, uh, idiosyncratic and shitty Italian party. The, the way it kind of generally reflects our present is like the appearance of like an extreme amount of representation yeah, yeah actually yeah. conceals the total lack of like depth or roots or anything that might give it any kind of meaning or purpose like the so it's like post-occupy contradiction yeah absolutely but but i mean like you know people like obviously podemos and you could say syriza uh, were you know better than five star and you know people always say well the difference is that in Italy there wasn't the social mobilization uh, before those parties existed so therefore they uh, so I mean in Spain and Greece you know you had the square movements and stuff then they realized that they're not going to achieve anything so they enter parliamentary politics whereas in Italy it's like that but without the movement that comes before but nonetheless you basically end up with a similar situation which is that uh, the internal democracy just doesn't exist. So that's, that's, me, yeah. So that's so that's, so, so that's so that's that's the state of <laughs> Italian Italian populism. But Phil, you had a, you had a question, a kind of bringing bringing all the many things that we've discussed uh, over the over the course of this this podcast episode together. Well, I was going to ask you before you interrupted me. Um, so. <laughs> I, I just. I just wanted to make sure you weren't gonna gonna talk about Scientology or, or some, no, no, some no. other, other erudite <laughs> no. intervention I'm and ask the, ask the right question. So the right question, yes. Uh, thinking about the the way you were describing their refusal to wield political power because that would uh, the five star refusing to wield political power because that would. Um, defeat their rationale and purpose is interesting to me at least because um it's kind of ties into something we've been talking about here more broadly which is um or at least in the case of five star the refusal to wield political power the the refusal to engage in the actual business of politics 
um, effectively participates in the same outsourcing of politics that has been the problem in Italy, mm. and particularly in practice, you know, the outsourcing of politics to the European Union. So we've mentioned a bit about the Europeanization of politics and with reference to the Eurozone. Um, but I mean, the core, you know, something which I think is worth talking a bit more about as well for Italy as the future is the way in which um, the elected government of Berlusconi was uh, overthrown effectively. Yeah, and what was just a soft coup, a soft coup by the EU and replaced with a technocratic cabinet of Mario Monti. Um, And you've mentioned a few times as to how there's still this longing for European rule, for rule from the outside in in Italian politics. So could you tell us a bit more about that aspect of Europeanization in Italy? With specific reference to the the coup? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I mean, so basically what the way it played out was that, um, I mean, it's interesting also because it happened at the same, it's very well detailed in uh, Perry Anderson's article, uh, The Italian Disaster, which was for the LRB, uh, where basically he describes this process, which is like, um, basically, I mean, obviously, you know, the Berlusconi uh, administration, of the the sort of post-crisis years was besieged from the right by the Democrat Party, which constantly accused him of being solely responsible for the public debt, of not taking serious action to reduce it, uh, and this kind of thing. Um, And basically he refused to, I mean, he didn't, I wouldn't, I'm, (laughs) I don't want to like idealize his own role. I mean, Berlusconi didn't like resist the demands of the European Central Bank. Basically, what happened was when the European Central Bank thought that Italy was in trouble, uh, Draghi, uh, Mario Draghi, and um, uh, Trichet, who was the other uh, European Central Bank leader of the time, they sent a, in fact, public letter to the Italian government demanding swinging budget cuts, an increase in the pension age, this kind of thing. Uh, a, li- a smaller scale version of what they did to Greece, basically. And uh, Berlusconi w- wasn't playing ball. Uh, the Italian president, Giorgio Napolitano, who's meant to be a neutral arbiter of the constitution, uh, arranged together with Angela Merkel to make, um, to basically prepare a shadow government. So Mario Monti, uh, who was a Goldman Sachs technocrat, was appointed a senator for life, uh, and then uh, there started a process of basically trying to push up the, uh, the the spread, which is the difference between German and Italian bond yields, to basically make the government unable to like finance its day-to-day business, kind of a, a little like on the model of when you see the kind of government shutdowns in the in the United States. Um, so basically, um, uh, Napolitano and Merkel prepared a shadow government to be led by Monti. Uh, they um, refused basically to finance the Italian government and obviously because it, it doesn't have its own currency uh, the government wasn't able to respond in any way uh, and then basically that uh, chipped away at um, Berlusconi's parliamentary support and uh, he was forced out and he was forced to resign um, and then was introduced a government so as I say Berlusconi didn't like resist so it's like he kind of, I think Berlusconi wanted to be seen to be kicked out um, in a certain sense. So basically the Monti government that followed was a cabinet of unelected technocrats 
uh, as in every single member of the cabinet was not elected to any kind of function. And it ruled Italy for more than a year. Uh, it's become a quite typical mode of government in Italy. There have been uh, at least three of these governments in the last 25 years. Um, and, you know, the, this was a government that increased the pension age by uh, five years for women and actually imposed, uh, imposed an automatic mechanism uh, indexing pension age rises to, um, age, to rise in life expectancy. So it, it, it actually like constantly increases. Um, and, you know, actually pushed the country far deeper into, like all of the like youth unemployment stuff. It was under that government it sought. Um, you know, as I say, Italy is one of the countries that actually has a lower GDP than in 2007, uh, even now. The only other ones are Greece and Portugal in, in the Eurozone. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was a coup. Um, to add a slightly more humorous note, um, uh, Berlusconi was on TV the other night and he wanted to back up the uh, claim that he had indeed been removed in a coup. And so he, he um, cited the opinion of a leading uh, liberal philosopher, uh, Jürgen Habermas. Uh, but uh, he was actually unable to remember the name and it was on live TV. So he called him Lubomar. <laughs> I prefer Lubomar to Habermas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he had uh, something of a one-track mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, That'd be a great Twitter handle or kind of social media profile, Lubomar, no? Yeah. I Maybe. Mean, whatever happened to the Bunga Bunga investigation? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm still watching through the videos. So, um, <laughs> but like, also, I mean, so, although obviously, you know, Berlusconi, charlatan, horrible guy, blah, blah, like, the, the. He was the, elected, the, I mean. The, he was elected. He's actually, Italy hasn't had an elected prime minister since then, which was more yeah. than six years ago. And, yeah. you know, if. And basically, the, the the connivance between the president, like vastly acting beyond his duties, uh, sorry, his his like constitutional role, a foreign head of government, you know, Angela Merkel isn't even she doesn't like she's not like you know the queen of the EU, you know, a foreign head of government, unelected politicians. It was you know if it happened to a government of the left, everyone would have gone, and everyone in the international media would have gone nuts. Yeah. And it adds to the sense and you know that Italy's institutions are undemocratic and distant from the population and not to be trusted. Um, yeah, it's to, take a, travesty. to take a further example, actually, uh, what happened almost a year later was that Giorgio Napolitano, basically Napolitano was the leader of the right wing of the PCI throughout the kind of 70s and 80s, and he became the first ex-communist president, but was always like a, a you know, he's, he's a very strongly pro-EU liberal. You'd probably even say he was of the centre-right. Um, so basically, he was the kind of guarantor of the pact that allowed the Monti government. And uh, towards the end of 2012, there were some uh, wiretaps by the uh, Palermo, uh, I think it was the police, if not the sort of state prosecutor. I'm not sure on that. But uh, basically, uh, it was Napolitano speaking to um, Nicola Mancino, who was uh, who had been an interior minister, who's basically under um, who was basically being tried for uh, c basically collaborating with the mafia to cover up the murder of anti-mafia judges. Yeah, Falcone and them. 
Yeah, Falcone and uh, Borsellino. And also in the killings, like 20 other people yeah. died. Um, and basically there were these wiretaps. And it was interesting because uh, the it was interesting the way in which when Napolitano was revealed as speaking to this to to Mancino, obviously for the basically to to help him resist the charges of which he's actually still under investigation and uh, looks likely to go to prison. Um, the the way in which the political and media class totally shut down anyone who criticised Napolitano. And uh, ultimately, the, the wiretap tapes were actually destroyed. Um, but to give an example, there was an editorial in La Repubblica, which is like uh, the best-selling newspaper in Italy, but has an editorial line sort of somewhere between The Guardian and The Times. Um, and the, the editorial by its founder, Eugenio Scalfari, was along the lines, um, well, the journalists who mention this should feel ashamed of themselves because by attacking the president of the republic, they're attacking our democratic institutions. Um, if only Italy were a normal country like Britain, we're in the House of Commons every week, the politicians address each other in a formal and business-like manner. <laughs> <laughs> and amazing. yeah, and, and that in a nutshell is like everything wrong with Italy, basically, you know. <laughs> So what a what a what a note to finish on. Um, <laughs> so it, Italy is a laboratory for the future of European politics. As a warning from the president, uh, listeners, there you have some some ideas for your old fashioned and, and white Russian cocktail parties, um, <laughs> or from your slugs from the hip flask on the picket line. Um, I think all that remains is for us to say thanks so much for that, um, David. Um, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, so another another plug. Um, check out David's recent articles on on Jacobin, uh, especially the the Gross Coalition, um, which I particularly enjoyed. And listeners, please do buy uh, David's book on the crisis of Italian post-war democracy when it comes out with Verso. When's that going to be, David? Not to put any pressure on you. <laughs> um, it will be after I've finished writing it. Oh, good. Okay, <laughs> that's no probably better than before. Later, um, yeah. I've, I've I've basically changed my perspective slightly from the. Uh, need to get it out quickly to respond to the rise of a fascist government to my uh, slow wait for inconclusive result prediction <laughs> which applies to the book as well as the election excellent brilliant so uh, listeners join us join us next time uh, when we're talking about the equal opportunities revolution um, and hopefully we've gone some way to uh, defending if not explaining the title of this this podcast for particularly eagle eagle-eared listeners so um yeah so ciao how ciao can you be eagle-eared how can you be eagle-eared <laughs> i don't i don't know eagles probably have good ears eagles don't even have ears Owl, they only sounds fox-eared bat-eared bat-eared bats have bat good okay um so yeah well um, so join us next time listeners when we'll be talking about the equal opportunities <laughs> revolution so ciao for now from alpha bunga bunga bye bye, bye.